0: Exterior, mansion driveway, mid-afternoon A Corvette pulls into the driveway of a Bel Air mansion From it emerges Hollywood's most acclaimed and obsessive method actor, 35-year-old Saturday Lewis He enters the foyer of his home and presses play on his answering machine. There's one message from his agent, Billy Clientel.
1: Hey, Saturday. You got some mail. Look down. Open the envelope. It's a screenplay. It's going to be the best movie of 1996.
0: Saturday picks up the manila envelope on the floor. He opens it.
1: Get this. You're not going to play the lead. Get this. You're not gonna care, because you're gonna get to work with the knee can't tear.
0: He pulls the screenplay out of the folder. It's twice as thick as he was expecting. The cover page reads, Cyber Cowboys. Welcome back to a closer look. The Criterion Collections Investigative Film History Podcast. I'm Will Sennett. And I'm Nate Fisher. This season, we will be focusing on a topic that is dear to both of our hearts, cinema. Le cinema. Das Kino. A film production, when done right, is like jazz. Everybody knows what note to hit at the exact time, and they all agreed on it in advance. But when done wrong, it's like war. Because people can die. The French have a phrase called le film modit. Le film maudit. Yeah, okay. It translates into the cursed film. History has been rife with La Film Modise, The Magnificent Ambersons, The Passion of Joan of Arc, Apocalypse Now, Heaven's Gate, The Twilight Zone, the movie, or John Travolta's Gotti. These are just the ones that made it into the public eye. Some didn't even make it that far. Some died and now sit in a pickle jar on Hollywood's proverbial shelf. They're rumors, whispers, campfire stories of money lost and lives ruined. Or lives lost and money ruined. What if we told you that the most expensive one of these has been completely buried, lost to time like a late train? And what if we told you that we decided that we would be storage war guys one time, and in one of the garages we found never-before-seen documentary footage from the set of that movie, a production that could have become the greatest movie ever made, but instead killed dozens of people, destroyed an entire town, and nearly started World War III? This is A Closer Look. The year is 1989. You're in Los Angeles. You see a bar on the Sunset Strip. Over it is a faded Technicolor sign that invites you into the Rainbow Bar. You walk inside. Dozens of options suddenly appear before you. You can walk to the end of the bar and see Lemmy from Motorhead playing a video slot machine. Or you could walk into the bathroom and find Kelsey Grammer smoking crack out of an apple. Or you could walk over to the bar and order a Miller Lite from the bartender Dennis Cantor. Cantor had arrived in Hollywood three years prior because he, like everybody at the time, saw a Motley Crue video and wanted to party there. Soon he would be seduced by the same siren come femme fatale that 30 years later would beckon both me and Nate unto the rocks like Odysseus. Lady screenwriting. And he took to it like Lawrence did to Arabia. Just like me and Nate. I wanted to be a screenwriter ever since I first saw The Bicycle Thief at 7 years old, which led me to NYU for my undergrad and then Harvard for my screenwriting PhD. And I wanted to be a screenwriter ever since I saw Sicario when it came out. It was at Harvard where I began writing my first screenplay about graffiti artists growing up in the hardscrabble streets of Seattle during the Mount St. Helens eruption called Humans of the Great Hither. And I started my screenplay in the first semester of my junior year at Arizona State, because I was only taking two classes and had a ton of downtime. It's about a girl who's in the British version of Homeland Security, and she's sent into the Channel, which is like how drugs get into the United States from Mexico, but instead it's into London from dirty, dirty France. There, she meets a guy who works for the British CIA like James Bond, who has his own agenda, and he takes her on the ride of her life. It's called International Underwaters, 20,000 Feet Under the Drugs. Dinas was never the Hollywood type. He was from the town of Beerboos, Kentucky, a border town which sprung up when Indiana banned liquor in 1900. Dinas grew up a star athlete with a focus on diving. Of course, diving in beer booze meant getting drunk and jumping off the town water tower into a pool of hay. He got a scholarship to the University of Kentucky, which he reneged when he found out that their pool was full of water. He then turned to drink for four years until, in 1986, he saw a Motley Crue video and declared...
2: Well, you see, I wanted to party on the Sunset Strip with the rest of the perfumed rats. I know it's surprising.
0: That is, in fact, the voice of Dinas Cantor. We'll get to that. Dinas then hopped on a 54-hour bus ride, which dropped him off directly in front of the Rainbow Room. He got a job bartending there and stayed there for three years doing plum nothing.
2: Was that that where you met Frank Castle? Yes, we had a kind of, um, Arthur versus Lancelot rivalry at the Big Buck Hunter machine. Ah, the deer-shooting arcade game. Yes, with the earliest model, you
3: fight a live round at a sheet of LEDs and the green lights represented the deer
2: and a red light represented the child. And Mr. Castle and I, by God, I am loath to admit, we shot our fair share of children. on oh, an accident, of course. You hold the console long a certain... Bloodlust sets in, overtakes you, and then becomes you. And that's what I told Frank about my idea.
0: Who was Frank Castle? Well, he was no hair metal barfly. Frank was a winner. Frank Castle was a one-man mid-80s A24 from sci-fi smash hit The Things From Somewhere to iconic teen movie The Big Bong, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Attack Enemies, and the 10-film franchise Suburban Satan. But then he had a string of flops, kids' movies like The Chinese Dog and Snowboard Summer, and the misguided John Landis Oscar bait Copernicus. Which was the only bad movie that John Cazale was in. Nobody ever talks about it, but it was dog shit. John Cazale died because of John Landis. Having been in producer hell for half a decade, Frank Castle found himself persona non grata in Tinseltown. His only friend in the world was his local bartender. Who had just dreamed his way into the home run idea that would be Frank's golden ticket back to the top. This is from an earlier interview of Dinas and Frank from 1989. Here's James Lipton. Our gentlemen interviewees tonight consist of the production team behind Blood and Sand, a cinematic delicacy that is as sanguine and political, yet mysterious, as promised in its title. The artists are producer Frank Castle.
4: Hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. I'm fantastic.
0: And new director, Denis Cantor. What's fucking smoking, Jiminy T's? I'm real fired up to be here. That voice is also Denis Cantor. He adopted the affluent accent once he came up with the idea for Cyber Cowboys.
2: Now, Mr. Cantor, walk us through the conception of blood and sand and what the story is. Well, I was tending at the Rainbow Room and I kept looking over from the Big Buck Hunter to the TV what was playing
3: all that war shit going down in Afghanistan, and I kept getting my wires crossed between the game and the
2: TV, and then I realized, shit, them's the same damn thing,
4: brother. Uh, What Dinas means is that Blood and Sand is the story of the Afghan people's struggle against a Soviet invader, told through the story of a white Russian Air Force pilot that goes native and adopts the native customs of the Mujahideen.
0: And let's now discuss the casting choices for the film.
3: Watchers well, love Kevin Costner. I remember watching The Untouchables and thinking, damn, that dude's a fucking raw dog assassin. So casting him as Jacob Smirnoff was easy as shit.
4: The cast is impeccable, James. Costner meets a foe turned friend turned lover turned turncoat turned stone cold bitch played by Sharon Stone. Sorry, above the law, she's built like a damn Corvette, dude. Stone plays a CIA uh, sorry. Democracy Encourager working with the Mujahideen, wherein she forms a love triangle with Kostner Smiranoff and the native warrior chieftain Osama bin Laden.
2: Osama beans, this guy fucking rules, man. Apex predator, kill or be killed.
4: Now we auditioned countless actors from around the Arab-speaking world for the bin Laden role, but of course we had to settle for the audition that most amazed us.
2: Val fucking Kilmer, baby.
0: The highest grossing movie of 1990 was a war epic featuring Val Kilmer as Osama bin Laden. And as insane as that sounds, the story of how it got produced was even crazier. Using the Freedom of Information Act and also read it, we were able to find out that Dinas delivered one-fourth of a script to Frank Castle, who delivered half a script to the CIA, who in turn delivered three-fourths of a script to the Mossad. The Mossad returned the finished script to Dinas and Frank with a note attached that read, Kostner is in. One week later, Dinas, along with Costner, Stone, Castle, and Oliver North, who ensured that the CIA parts of the film made it into the finished product, arrived in Afghanistan with U.S. military escort. And two weeks later, the film was ready for its red carpet premiere. The premiere took place back home in Los Angeles, not at a major theater, but at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where it was deemed a total success. Documents reveal that senior CIA officials felt that Dinas was a perfect house director for their upcoming projects like The Hunt for Red October, Air Force One, and Shakespeare in Love. But on the night of the Oscars, it became very clear that Dinas would not be willing to play ball. the award for Best Director on behalf of Dinas Cantor, Pete Rose. Dinas disappeared shortly before the Oscars, and in his stead, he sent Pete Rose, who gave an impassioned protest speech while dressed as a Native American.
2: America, I'm not going to be humble about it. I belong in the Hall of Fame. I know Dinas feels very strongly about this. I never bet on my own team, I just bet on myself. And that just so happened to include the team I was on. But this kind of shit happens all the time. You ever heard of insider trading? Insider trading is as American as Apple. Uh, Wait, you guys hear that music? Is that just me? Fuck, I'm drunk. Oh my God. What am I wearing?
0: At that point, Arnold Schwarzenegger picked Pete Rose up like a baby and carried him off the stage. Hollywood quickly forgot about the Rose incident because they had a bigger question on their minds. Where was Dinas? Dinas was reportedly sighted in places like Tehran, New Delhi, Tampa. Daytona Beach, and Key West. Each witness said he was traveling on foot. The mystery was finally solved four years later, when Dinas appeared outside the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv, holding a 180-page script for a movie called Cyber Cowboys. It's great to be back for the second season of A Closer Look. And we're happy to announce that we've been picked up by the esteemed podcasting network listening, listening, and in... Listenin in... Listenin in. You can listen in to any of listen and f- wide array of podcast delights, such as the slightly sardonic movie review podcast. That's not how that works. OK, Mulholland Drive. Uh, I'd like to buy one coherent plot, please. For instance, the famous diner scene. Ah, uh, Yes, where we see a monster that has checks notes, nothing to do with the rest of the plot. Not to mention at the point where Dan Harmon's story circle dictates where the bad guy would be introduced. Hey, David, you think you can make a movie just by being random? Uh, that's that's not not how how that that works. Or the basketball analytics podcast, White Guys Talking NBA. Yo, KD finna get out of Brooklyn. He ain't got that dog in him. What do the streets say? Yo, fam, the streets have spoken, and they say, Katie on that Squidward shit. Or the Talking Sopranos spinoff starring Kelsey Grammer and David Hyde Pierce conversing Frazier, There's a palpable sense of loss, and this is just after... After the towers fell, yes. Yes, and I, I think this... 9 anxiety manifested in how I portrayed Frasier's reaction to learning that he was uninvited from the Wine Society's Christmas party. And of course, right after this is your famous anguished outburst when Marty gives you the gives me the blue jeans, yes. That's sort of um a shared national cry, I believe. Or the podcast White Guys Talking Rap. <laughs> What up? This is Bathroom Jake and Rap Game Shawshank. Number one all-time IMDb. We're talking Kendrick. Did he low-key fall off? You know what I'm gonna say. Oh, oh, what you smoking over there, Shawshank? I'm smoking that Kendrick pack. Yes, sir! And the Parody Investigative History Podcast, A Closer Look. So, uh, turns out that JFK was actually killed by a ninja star. Thrown by, uh you know who Donald Pleasance is? Yeah, he was Clute. No, no, that's Donald Sutherland. Donald Pleasance from Halloween. Oh, yeah, uh, because Donald Pleasance from Halloween was working for the uh, fucking Cubans or whatever. And then JFK goes, oh, uh, oh, my neck hurts a lot. Oh, dear, damn you, Donald Pleasance from Halloween. That's a good impression, right? For a bi-weekly fee of $20, you can have access to these and hundreds of other podcasts. Just go to and. Listen in and fuck. Listen in. Why isn't it just in? That makes more sense. I don't know, man. All right, well, you can just go to L-I-S-T-E-N-I-N-I-N dot com and sign up today. The year is 2022. Society's technology has progressed incredibly fast. The speed of that progression shocked the world to such an extent that society began to regress backward at the speed with which technology went forward. Now, a unified world government rules over a desolate, outlaw wasteland filled with gunslingers, cattle rustlers, and whores. In their world, violence is all over the place. Death is baked into the sand like a dried new road. And information is money. Literally. In Dinas Cantor's nightmare vision of the future, Humans are so starved for information that their currency is facts written on pieces of paper. The world government keeps a vice grip on how much information is uploaded to the internet. Humans continually tap tap on their internet bricks in their pocket, hoping and praying that the government will provide them new pieces of information to trade and survive. But all they get is fake information. Sound familiar? News of Denis's ambitious new project hit the streets of Hollywood like someone dropped a truck from the sky. But when Denis arrived to pitch the project, the industry was even more stunned. Denis was unrecognizable. He had traded in his Def Leppard t-shirt for an Armani suit and a purple ascot. He smoked a pipe. He talked like Frasier. And his new name was Denis Cantare. This from the 1994 Inside the Actor's Studio interview. And you have an exciting new project
3: to tell us about. You know, I feel that the word project is insufficient. I like to think of it more as an undertaking in the manner of Sisyphus, the man who pushed the rock up a hill over and over and over again, only to be defeated by his lack of ambition. Which is where, of course, the term sissy comes from. Are you sure that's correct, Denis?
2: Denis. And I'm no sissy. Got it?
0: Denis marched up to every studio with a laundry list of demands, and chief among those demands was that they pay an exorbitant salary to hire assistant director Pearl Huet. Pearl Huet was Denise's childhood best friend. Up until 1996, she had never worked on a movie set and had apparently never seen a movie. According to Pearl, her reason behind never having seen a movie was this. I didn't play football till I was 11, which means I didn't play football for 10 years, and I was awesome at it, I was so damn good, man. So I figured, why would I watch a movie? If I ever make one, I'll probably be good at it. So who cares? Pearl's unheard of $5 million AD salary was a drop in the bucket for the $100 million that Frank Castle had been able to produce. As Frank said during production,
4: I told Denis I can get you $100 million with the snap of my fingers. And I did. Then he said it wasn't enough. And I said, Denis, I can't get you $200 million with two snaps of my fingers. That's not how it works. If it was, I would just snap my fingers real fast, ten times, and have one billion dollars. But he insisted that he needed more money, and he told me to get it by any means necessary. So I did. While Frank got started on securing the extra funding, Denis
0: began to assemble the most prestigious production crew imaginable. Denis needed a cinematographer. Truly elite cinematographers are like directors of their own. They have pronounced styles and possess a commanding aura that makes them the most sought-after commodities. Perhaps the most commanding of them all was a former commander himself.
3: Lieutenant Jacket Coldweather, Royal Air Force, 1939-1945. Director of Photography. When I'm not flying Spitfires, of course.
0: Jacket Coldweather had been England's finest cinematographer, with a legend all his own as an ace fighter pilot during the Battle of Britain. A true English gentleman... Jacket had photographed several BAFTA award-winning films in the 40s and 50s, such as The Daughter of the Trolleyman, The Trolleyman's Daughter, Hills and Mountains of Scotland and Wales, and the World War II epic Auf Wiedersehen mein Trolley. At the age of 75, his best eyesight was well behind him, but he was still a formidable presence on set. Denis targeted many of the great European masters of not only film craft, but art itself. To create the garments to match Denis' sci-fi, old-western, post-apocalyptic, hyper-technological aesthetic, Denis turned to the world of fashion. He hired famous Dutch fashion designer Dick van Disyke. Dick was able and very willing to talk to us. He actually wired us $100 for our time each time we talked.
3: As a designer of garments, I've always believed in being sexy. Movies are perhaps even sexier than the clothes, so... When Dennis called me and said that I want to make a futuristic movie that is also set in a Cowboy, I say that is a very sexy challenge.
0: And you had never worked on a movie set before.
3: No, in fact, I have, in fact, done costumes for several comedy movies from the Netherlands. Uh, the title's not easy to translate, but they were uh, The Slurp Slurp, The Funky Finger, uh, The Seduction of Emily Suck, uh, The Mummies from Luxembourg. A few more, but I do not want to bore you. This is such fun. Here, can you send me your banking information? I'd like to wire you on $100.
0: Oh, that won't be necessary. Yeah, yeah, this is our job. We just want to hear your stories. No,
3: no, 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 no. This is what is going to happen now. I love to give you $100. Then you go, put on your sexiest shirt, and you go to down to the club with the blue lights.
0: Oh, we're not really club guys. Yeah, we play a lot of pool.
3: Nonsense. You go to the nightclub, and you find the sexiest girls who do the best dancing. You take the $100, and you buy a bottle of vodka, and you invite them to enjoy it with you.
0: We're beer guys. Yeah, have you ever had a stone IPA?
3: Stop this. Beer is for fat men from the factory or sexy young boys, beautiful voices. You buy a bottle of vodka with $100. It has to be vodka for the ladies. Vodka makes the beautiful clothes on the floor.
0: For the next guy, please listen to season one. I mean, really, just please listen to it. God. Please. We spent so much time on it. And so, so much money. We are well below our listenership goals. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Anyway, back to the story. Normally, when a film is in production, little concern is given to the score. Music generally comes later. But Denis had a top-to-bottom vision. Everything had to fit together just so. Nothing could be merely added in post, so the composer would need to be on set. And it just so happened that on the Sunset Strip, Denis had been enamored with an old friend of ours, Money McDonald's.
2: Well, baby, right, round like a record, y'all spitting back to me. Why, I never. Hi, Money. Now, I understand y'all are here to talk to me about a very scrumptious period of my life. Unbelievable levels of intrigue.
0: Money, you were the composer for the unfinished project, Cyber Cowboys.
2: Yes, and I was also working at the time with my new band, Sensual Gospel.
0: So you're doing, like, gospel music?
2: Nah, baby.
0: What kind of music was it?
2: We were a groovy rock orchestral collective. You were confused by the name, weren't you? Yeah. Many have pointed that out to me after the fact. But make no mistake, babies, we were disco-nificent.
0: Wait, you were doing disco- Just leave it, leave it, leave it, leave it. How did you meet Denis Cantare?
2: How did we meet? How did Jesus meet John the Baptist? We are all on the road to Damascus, baby. But if you must know, we gobbled a sandwich bag of quaaludes in Eddie Van Halen's bathroom. He said to me, Money, I'm conjuring a movie, and I want you to write the music. I said, baby, I don't write music. I make music grow, like a plant, or a baby, or one of those little animals you pour water on. You see, I didn't know much about making music for the movies. But luckily, I had a secret wizard hiding in the trees. My bass player and composing partner, Superfudge.
0: So Superfudge did a lot, if not all, of the composing.
2: I mean, this cat's a genius. He's Isaac Newton. Or as I like to call him, Isaac Fig Newton. Because he's so flavorsome. And you know you're going to have ten, even though you said you would only have three. Okay, so
0: what exactly did you do, Money?
2: Well, you see, I wrote the lyrics. I've always been something of a tongue smith. If you don't believe me, ask.
0: Couldn't think of anyone.
2: No, I couldn't come up with somebody fast enough. But I did write the lyrics. I have the tapes in my hidden vault. Would you like to hear one of these forbidden kisses?
0: No, no, that's
4: okay.
2: Sorry, I had to play it off my phone by holding it up to the webcam. My pet Gibbon, Alistair, ran off with my auxiliary cord. He thinks it's his baby.
0: Thank you, Money, we have to go. Remember, we said we could only go till 5 o'clock?
2: Ah, yes, I forgot y'all are still bent over the knee of Father Time. I plan around the tides. I just listen to the rhythm of the ocean. Would you guys like to come whale-
0: Unfortunately, Money McDonald's is an invaluable source who knows a lot of secrets, so we're going to have to talk to him a lot. We'll try to keep it brief. Perhaps the most daunting element of production on Cyber Cowboys would be set design. No one had made a western in the future before, least of all on the scale that Denis Canter was envisioning. Complicating matters even further were the rumors swirling around some of the set pieces included in Denis' script. And those rumors got even swirlier when instead of hiring a set designer, Denis brought in Portuguese sculptor Eusebio Crisco.
2: Why is there a giant statue of Godzilla next to the Washington Monument?
3: And why is there also a giant sculpture of Godzilla next to the Eiffel Tower? It's the work of Eusebio Crisco, who many are calling the Pele of Sculpting. Uh, you see, I watch a lot of, uh, Godzilla movies growing up and, uh, you know, Godzilla, he is a crazy guy. Where would he go next? Uh, could he go to the Washington Monument? Uh, would the wind knock him over before he did? Uh, could the army cut his head off like, uh, like a guy like a, uh, like a chicken? Uh, so this is to say he could make it. And, uh, the USA not as strong as one thinks. What are you doing next? Well, in America, there is a pretend dog named Marmaduke. And he represents the unbounded force of nature that exists outside the gates of civilization. I mean, you never know how big he could be. So I am going to make him bigger than Godzilla and put him on the highway. Crisco's massive sculptures have attracted the attention of every American, including Hollywood. I get a call from a Hollywood guy. He says he wants me to design a really big train. This is a big challenge for Eusebio, this first thing I build that is not inflated. But it will be a very big train.
0: After the 60 Minutes interview, a phone call was placed to Frank Castle's office by Harge Gritchard, a studio head at Paramount. <laughs>
4: I'm looking at the budget right now. Are we making a movie or invading China? Well, Harge, Denis has a vision. You ever had a vision? What do you know about freedom, man? I'm asking about this train you want to build from scratch. It's the centerpiece of the movie, Arch. How long is it? That's classified. I'm hearing reports that you want it to be a half mile long. No. We want it to be a half mile tall. What? A tall train, what the fuck? Get us the money, Harge.
0: Harge Grichard recorded all of his phone calls. As a matter of fact, pretty much everyone did. Nixon had just come out, and everyone in the industry was all trying to blackmail everybody else. And we have access to all of these, which will be invaluable and unbelievably convenient sources of information. But Frank Castle didn't have enough blackmail material. So he had to go back to his old friends from the production of Blood and Sand. No one knows exactly what happened at Frank's meeting in D.C. with the CIA and the Mossad. Except for Money McDonald's.
2: Yeah, I think I got invited on accident, baby. The verb was immediately that I shouldn't be there, so I excused myself to go to the bowling alley, and on my way out, I heard them making a deal.
0: The deal was reportedly struck for an unlimited budget on one mystery condition. The next day, Denis observed the audition of an unknown actress, Elena Rothschild, who was cast in a key role. The circumstances around this audition made Denis increasingly paranoid, to the point where he hired a documentary crew to follow and document everything that would be happening on set, which would be helmed by Werner Herzog.
1: When Denis asked me to take charge of this Herculean undertaking... I knew immediately that this was not the kind of thing that a human being could accomplish. Some things are
0: just too big. Herzog's first day on the job had him tracking the fleet of production vehicles as they drove from Hollywood to their shooting location. The convoy was hundreds of vehicles long and was accompanied by several airplanes and helicopters. At the front of the convoy, being very erratic, was Jacket Coldweather.
1: It was like a grim Mardi Gras parade, crossing the river Styx without any water.
0: Inside the convoy was a few choice cast members, a crew of 400, and an unknown number of extras, many of whom would be leaving Los Angeles for the final time.
1: As the journey drew to its end, I began to hear an eerie sound that no one else could make out. Faint whispers, like when the guy, three seats down from you on the bus, has his headphones hanging around his neck, and you can barely hear the music playing, but enough to make it out, so you spend ten minutes being like, who is that? Is that Pearl Jam?
0: Witnesses report that as the convoy first sighted the state line, the air immediately grew cold. Thundering ahead, Herzog's documentary crew and its four vehicles broke off and turned directly south, driving away from the convoy as fast as they could towards Phoenix, Arizona. They would never return to set. Denis did not know this until the next day, when he received a tape recording of a message from Herzog.
1: Denis, you must turn back. You have driven into your own demise. You will dig too deep into the desert and you will find things that were never supposed to be found. I beg you, abandon this idea. Abandon this project. If not for yourself, then for the lives of everyone else with you.
0: But Denis did not listen. He threw the tape into the desert and proceeded to set up camp in the devil's country of Utah. Next time on A Closer Look.